Calling all Swifties and champions of change, Like a Girl Media is rolling out the red carpet for you with our Thrive Like a Girl contest. We're all about celebrating powerful women leaders who inspire us to dream big and push boundaries. And who embodies that spirit more than Taylor Swift herself? Here's your chance to see her live in concert. We're giving away two tickets to Taylor Swift's show in London on Saturday, June 22nd. Imagine being part of the magic, all thanks to Like a Girl Media. Entering is easy. Subscribe, share, and show us which episodes inspired you the most. Visit our website or check our social media for all the details. Don't just dream it, be it. Thrive like a girl and make this summer unforgettable. Contest opens globally. Voidware prohibited. Must be 18 or older to enter. No purchase necessary. Subscribe and share with hashtag thrive like a girl and tag us at like a girl underscore media for entry. Unlimited entries means unlimited chances. Winner chosen at random after contest closes May 20th, 2024. We'll be notified via DM. Make sure your profiles are not private. Check full rules on our site. This is your shot to see Taylor Swift live. Don't miss it. Oh, there you are. Hi, and welcome to the Hit Like a Girl podcast, where with each episode, we hear from different women experts in the health IT industry. We like to hear about what makes them tick, how they overcome challenges, work they are especially proud of, advice they would give to women following in their footsteps, and much more. I'm Joy Rios. I'm Robin Roberts. This is our ninth and final episode of the season. And today, we are chatting with the one and only Lauren Patrick, president of Health Monics. She's got a lot to share, so let's get started. Well, let's jump right in. I guess that what really we would like to know and hear in your own words is how did you get started? We know that you have a both bachelor's and master's in computer engineering. And so how did that basically lead to being the president of one of the most respected and well-known qualified registries? Oh, wow. The country. Well, that's a big question. <laughs> um, yeah. So, so when I was growing up, my father was an aerospace engineer, and he was like, you're good at math, so um, let's try this new. I mean, computer science, computer engineering at the time was a very new field. I think there were three colleges in Ohio that offered any sort of program that had anything to do with the computer. So I decided to go into that field, got a degree in computer science, and then, which was much, which was about programming and how you put together systems. But then when I was looking for a graduate program, they were even fewer and farther between. So I really got a degree in um, engineering. It was an electrical engineering course that allowed you to build computers. So that's really what I did. I built computers from the ground up and then created the machine language and created the operating systems and all of the all the layers that finally resulted in a computer. And um, I think to this day that really serves me well because I understand the possibilities. So when I graduated from college, I kind of followed my husband and I took a job doing computer engineering um, in Cleveland, which is where we live. And there weren't a whole lot of opportunities there. So then um, I moved into data processing. I worked for a bank. 
Um, and I found that I liked to create things. So every couple of years, I would go find another company that was just starting to build something. So for example, at the bank, we were just rolling out ATMs. They were brand new. And I went to work at um, a steel plant where we were automating the whole mill and put together a system to do that. So I found that I was every two years, I was going to a new company to do something new and really felt like I was a job hopper. At that time, you didn't change jobs every two years. So I went to work for a consulting company. I went to work for Ernst & Young, and they put me more in project management. And so I was doing that. I did that for about 20 years. And then when I moved to Philadelphia, I said, you know, I really want to do something different. So I um, decided I, was, I quit my job. I um, went down to the University of Pennsylvania and spoke with some people and said, you know, I have all of this knowledge of how to build computer systems. How can I help you do something that's meaningful in the healthcare space? And I went down to their continuing medical education department and they were like, well, you know, we really want to build education around what the physicians need. Right now, they can pick and choose. They can go to a seminar in Aspen if they want to. They can go take a course down in the Bahamas, they can study whatever, but what we'd really like to do is take all the data about how they're performing and figure out where there's really areas for improvement. And I said, well, I can do that. So I went back home and started writing software to do that. And um, it worked fairly well. So before I knew it, other folks were coming to me and saying, we'd like software to do that in various specialties. And that was really kind of the um, formation of what's now Healthmonics. You wow. did it. So your, yeah, your self-directed path or healthcare, I was going to ask where does healthcare innervate in your career timeline, but you really innervated into healthcare with all of your skills and experience and talents to build what is now Healthmonics. I really wanted and, uh, to do something that was more meaningful than, I mean, I sold tickets for the orchestra, and like I said, I built steel plants of technology, and it just didn't feel as fulfilling as I'm like, okay, you know, I'm at a point where I really want to do something that matters to me. There is a phrase that came into my life recently, and it kind of relates to your idea around job hopping, where a lot of times we think that we need to necessarily connect all of the dots, but for many of us, when we take on a job, regardless of the length of time we're there, we're essentially collecting dots. They may not make sense at the time. It's later on that you build your skill set, you learn something from one place and add it to your collection. And then potentially much, much later is when you get to actually connect all of those dots. And it sounds like that's a little bit what happened with you as well. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a really good insight, Joy. I think that that's very meaningful and certainly it was not a grand plan. It was more of a, a just following my own intuition and desire in terms of what I wanted to do. So let me ask a question. Is what Joy is saying is right? Because, you know, Healthmonics is, is an evolution. You know, it's um, the company, I think, has kind of been rebranded some, right? Is this you connecting the dots? Or do you think there's going to be something beyond this? Or are you just taking Joy in Healthmonics and what it's doing right now and the tools that you all have? What is, what is this chapter? Oh, so I think that there's so much to be done in this arena. So I think that over the last 10 years while I've been doing this, there's been a lot of personal 
background noise going on in terms of family illness, interactions with the healthcare system, and gaining a really uh, much more deep understanding of what it means on a personal level to go through some of these um, interactions with the healthcare system. So having said that, I think that between that and what I see as we work with our clients and partners, there's so much to do here that I think this is a long-term evolution. Where we started in terms of, like I said, that evidence-based where doctors needing to improve has really slowly morphed into what we're doing now with MIPS and value-based care and adding in cost components. There's so much to do that I think I'll be at this for a while. Now, for folks that don't know what Healthmonics is, can you describe it? What are the benefits of the platform? How does it help people that are trying to uh, get through these value-based care programs, MIPS, and the APM track? So what we do, because if you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail. That's the analogy that I use. Um, Since we're pretty good at technology, we try to utilize technology to bring to bear aha moments for clinicians as they use this software. So we bring together a lot of data and we present it to administrators, clinicians, anybody that'll listen to us to show them where there are improvements to be made, be it in the quality of care, be it in the patient experience, or be it in um, being able to utilize resources, we call it the cost component of many of these programs and really kind of lay out the data so that folks can look at that data and determine these are the changes we need to make and then watch how those changes result in better care. I love that the tools you have are helping really accelerate some of this value-based care movement with some of these insights. When you talk about those aha moments over time, you know, and where you started to where you are now, What's maybe one of your favorite interactions you've had with a client, a system, or an organization that's really been able to realize and glean the value you've really maybe intended when you set out in developing these? I would go way back. A few years ago, we had developed a platform for rheumatologists to assess their performance in terms of treating RA patients. And many of the physicians had to use this. There's a program called Maintenance of Certification, where uh, many of the specialty societies were demanding that doctors, in order to maintain their certification, had to do these programs. So we had a lot of doctors that were using it and grumbling all the way along the path. But I had a doctor call me up, and it was evening, and the company phone rolled over to my cell phone, and I picked it up, and um, he's like, you know, it says here that I'm not at 100%, and I just don't agree with that. And I said, okay, let's go take a look. And so we went into his data, and I explained to him, I said, so, so this, is, this is what we're seeing, and this is the current clinical guideline, and this is where your treatment of your patients is not along those same lines. And he was like, oh, my gosh, I never realized that. And so, you know, something like that where you very specifically work with one clinician and affect his or her treatment of patients, to me, it's, it's the joy. 
Well, you can't really argue with the data, too. I mean, I've run across several doctors who, you know, think that their performance is 100% on something. And then when you show them the data, you can actually have a more deeper conversation around, okay, well, something's not being captured. Maybe you're doing something, but it's, you know, there's, there's a missing piece in the workflow or we need to address something where the, something is falling between the cracks. And being able to identify that and having the data just make your case is great. I mean, it allows for a lot more progress, I imagine, and bigger leaps of progress than just kind of going it alone. So it's a great service. I can attest to so that. So it's, it's really been interesting to me because we're a small organization, and I will go into some of these larger organizations and sit in their boardroom and we'll talk about the data, and I'll be like, you know, we talked about this a little bit before, who am I to be telling these folks <laughs> um, you know, where their issues are. And they get so excited sometimes when you put some of this data up there. And we really provide, try to provide data where you can see the big picture, but then you can also drill down. And when they can drill down and they can see, um, you know, it's because we're referring patients to this particular sniff, or it's because this doctor is prescribing these particular drugs. And they go, wow, that's really, really interesting and we never knew that and I go wow you know the fact that we can do this and provide the data not that they haven't seen this data before but we can really provide it in a way that's actionable for them that they can say yes so that's what we need to change is terrific you know and so far we've just been really focused on presenting that data allowing folks to drill down um, I have everybody at the company and beyond laughs at me because, like I said, I'll never be done. I have visions of where this should go and how it should interact with, it should go back into the EMRs. The clinician should really be seeing this information in an actionable way at the point of care without encumbering them. They should not have to sit there and be typing and looking at their dashboard while they're in with the patient you know, allowing them to be able to do things with voice-activated kinds of tools or with us throwing up flags that very easily help them take a different direction. There's so much that we can do to continue to push that forward that, like I said, I don't know that I'll ever be done. You know, I love the futuristic thinking, and I feel like beyond this podcast recording, I think the uh, the three of us could, could geek out for hours on this stuff, Lauren. We are personally biased towards your tool because it does such an exceptional job of doing exactly what you just did. It is extracting what is useful and what is ultimately actionable, and that's so important. But there are many registries out there for our listeners that are thinking about a quality registry and looking you know, for a tool. What are some of the benefits or features that really sets Health Monics apart? Hmm, where do I start? We try to do a really good job of calculating the metrics appropriately. Some registries you put in, I met the quality action, I didn't meet the quality action, um, and it's basically just a recording tool, and there's not a lot of actionable insight that can be driven from it. But that's what some organizations want. They want a tool where I'm just taking the data, I'm putting it in there so that I can, I can aggregate it and I can send it to CMS. Um, what we try to do is really take that data and then slice and dice it in a lot of different ways to allow folks to really see the, the importance and the nuances of their data. 
another component that we try to do well is to bring data in without a lot of extra work. And that's a real challenge. Um, we all know that interoperability is a big buzzword right now, and it's not a problem that we've solved. But um, we work because of our technical bent. We work really hard to, to get the data in, and then we work really hard to map all of the data that clinicians have anyways, all of those special codes that are in their EMRs, we work to map into our system as well as we can so that there's less work to be done either by the clinician or by somebody doing coding. And um, the data can come in quickly, it can be mapped. You can see immediately, um, you know, the next morning or as soon as you put the data in, you can see the changes in your dashboards and in your patients. So those are just a couple. Um, in terms of the actual reporting component, if you are looking for optimizing your score, so MIPS right now is a program where score matters. And so there, and there's lots of different ways to get to a good score. So we have a lot of tools in there regarding um, reporting rates and optimizing measures and um, how do you get to your uh, maximum score without a lot of extra work. So we, we provide those sorts of tools as well. I could go on for an hour, but those are a couple of probably the most significant ones. That makes a lot of sense. I would like to ask you about the engagement on the, I guess, in the management of the data. Because in PQRS, when we go back to the world of quality measuring under the PQRS program, it wasn't as stringent. There were there was a lot more leeway in what the government was offering. And now, you know, then we moved into 90-day reporting period for the quality measures, and then both this year and basically going forward, you know, quality measures need to be tracked on an annual basis. So do you find that you're seeing much more engagement year-round as, um, as opposed to like right before submission when people are trying to, you know, maybe massage those last 90 days of their data? Like, is there any change in basically how people are engaging in the quality measure data ongoing? So it's really been a slow road. I think part of it is the fact that, so I talk about our company because in the sense that we bring together technology, clinical knowledge, and oh, by the way, legislative impact. So I think that the first year of MIPS, which was last year, a lot of folks were like, oh, Trump's in office. Um, there's a whole new administration. It's really not going to count. So we really don't have to move forward with it. And I think that as more words came out from the uh, administration that, yeah, this, this was a program that was going to go forward, more and more folks started to engage. So I don't think we saw it as much last year. Um, this year, folks are like, okay, I guess we really have to do something. And so we saw more of it this year. I think we're already seeing it hugely for 2019. Folks are knocking it. I mean, all of our conversations right now are, I need to get started. I need to get started. We're planning on having our platform up January 1 because that's what our partners are asking for so that they can start tracking. So I do think that in the last 12 months, 18 months, we have seen a, a shift. 
No, I'm sorry. I'm curious to know if that means that you then have two different programs running, like because you're going to have to have the 2018 data ready with all of that benchmark information so that people can submit it while at the same time having one uh, available to start tracking 2019. How does that work exactly? So we do. I mean, we also have 2017. So we really have three programs going on at the same time because a lot of the folks for 2017 have been doing their um, their final reviews with CMS where CMS came back and gave them their score and folks said, wait a minute, I, I need to understand why. And CMS does make mistakes. And so we support the we support our clients, our partners through the process of appealing. And that's been going on. Um, the other thing that will happen is some folks won't realize that there's an issue with their 2017 until the beginning of 2019 where they start getting reimbursements that are impacted. So they'll need to go back and look at their 2017 data as well. So we've got 2017 going on, 2018 going on, and 2019 going on. So, I mean, we knew this was coming. We've been doing this for a number of years, and we do, in fact, you can go back and you can look at your 2016 or your 2015 data. We can build dashboards for folks that shows over time how you're doing on the measures. The only issue is the measures kind of shift a little bit. CMS changes up some of the specifications from year to year. It is a lot to keep up with. And, you know, Lauren, I think one of the things we see on our side where Joy and I have been involved in the meaningful use PQRS and the MIPS space is whether people are integrating wholly integrated systems, whether it's an EMR, a billing company, a registry, all these things, I think I have a great deal of respect for the clients that are choosing the best in breed because, you know, solutions and tools like yours allow you to do what you just said, that you're ready to go when the clock resets. You know, people aren't waiting weeks or months in most cases to realize what's going on in the next year. And it really gives them ample opportunity to assess and improve. Well, you must be working with clients that are in that space, right? That are saying, I need to get ready for 19. A few of them, yes. <laughs> Most everyone is uh, still trying to finish the year strong, but everyone, especially after the final rule passing and the fact that the regulation and the measures change and evolve, everyone does want to get ready for the new year. And not all systems and dashboards and programs are ready to go. And I think you guys have had a really strong commitment in that regard and being ready when the clock strikes midnight. December 31st. Well, I, again, I think it's a, we care about what we do and there's a reason we do what we do. It's not just to, it's not just the bottom line. So those that want to get started, we get super excited about because those are the people that we like to work with and, and help them look at their data and understand it and figure out how we can, again, go back to better patient care. The other thing that's happening is the transition to higher levels of value-based care programs. So for example, in MIPS, folks are looking at their data and thinking about, am I ready to step into um, an accountable care organization? Or how can um, a chronic care management program impact this? Or some of my providers want to move into some other programs. I'm throwing around a lot of acronyms here, but you know, the OCM for the oncology patients or CPC plus for primary care docs, or we work with the American Psychological Association, and they've got a transforming care initiative. So the data is being used not just for MIPS reporting, but also to assess where do I fit in these alternative payment models? Um, how can I be ready as CMS 
kind of figures that out. And um, the sooner you're ready to look at your data from that perspective, the more you can get a jump on. So what am I going to do in 2020? What am I going to do in 2021? So I think it's important from that regard as well. Well, that brings up a really interesting question for me, which is to date, it seems like you've been working with the MIPS side of things, so eligible clinicians. But as organizations start to either create their own alternate payment model or as clinicians join ACOs, is there stuff that you're doing now related to the registry that is helping to support them? So a a couple of things. So one of them is a lot of the measures that are in MIPS align with measures that are in, for example, the ACO MSSP program. So oftentimes what we'll do is we'll take a look at those particular 15 or so measures that are in MIPS and see how they're going to perform once they get to the ACO space. Another aspect of that is looking at the cost component. So right now, if you're participating in MIPS, you don't have to do anything as far as cost goes. That just magically gets computed by CMS at the end of the year. But for those that, again, really want to be proactive, uh, we're building a tool so that they can track that as they go, not only for MIPS, so they can they can try to control some of their measures in terms of total cost of care and hospitalization episodes, but also think about it from the standpoint of these alternative payment models, because a lot of them focus more on cost than they do on quality right now. So we really need to bring that into the picture. So yes, that's that's one of those vision things where I sit here every day and, and talk to the staff about MIPS is great. We've got it covered. We need to think about where do we go from here. So we've built an ACO program to do all the quality tracking and we're just ramping up the cost component of that so that we can support our clients as they evolve into these other payment models. I am so excited to hear that. You know, there was a, a company I used to work for and we had the opportunity to take some of the prior year's data that were given to practices and organizations and we had designed a cost tool and, you know, people were out there talking about how you don't have to do anything. Like you said, it's just magically calculated but there really is insight to the methodology in that data, just like there is in the quality measures. And so, you know, that's very forward thinking of the organization to help people tackle that because the thing we've heard over and over is that we cannot measure value without that cost consideration. So it's really exciting to know you guys are honing in on that. So, yeah, so I think that it's very much part of the future. If we want to stay relevant in this space, I just feel like it's something we have to do. So let's use that and pivot a little bit. Let's talk about staying relevant in this space. You know, you've you've gathered there to kind of all these dots, like the analogy that Joy had. What do you do as an individual to kind of stay on top of all this? You know, last week there's that brand new rule that significantly may impact, you know, your programs and tools. It's 2,400 pages that comes out. Oftentimes before, you know, the ink is dry on the prior rules and all of the specs to keep up with. What is it that you do to stay up on the information relevant to your tools or just the industry in general, Lauren? So I think we all have our colleagues that we talk with and share information and share insights. There's a lot of really great people working in this space. And I think there's nothing more effective than sitting down and first of all, doing your homework. So reading that 2,378 page document 
and then getting on the phone or in a room with colleagues and, and talking about what it means, insights. I think that talking to folks that are from the organizations that help develop some of the rules and really gain insight, not only into the letter of the specification, but really what's the intent. And uh, I think that helps me make sure that what we're doing stays relevant and isn't just surface level compliance. And I'm sure you do the same. I mean, you you reach out, I'm sure, to your colleagues and, and have those discussions and and kind of discern what's important and where to go and what the the strategy is. I think we all have to do that to stay relevant and not only stay relevant, but provide provide insight to help things move forward, maybe beyond where CMS or some of the other payers are to kind of put out in front of people, hey, have you thought about um, have you thought about doing this or doing that? I mean, when when CMS brought up PQRI way back when, we were working, as I said, with a lot of the specialty organizations just on um, maintenance of certification, and they didn't have PQRI or, or any government programs in their crosshairs. And so we really brought it to them and said, look, what you're doing so aligns with where CMS is going. We really ought to put together a program that marries the two. I take it as part of our responsibility, not just to chase what's out there in terms of rules and regulations, but to really think about how we can make it better. Right now, we're working on a big readmissions program so that we can add more meaning to some of the readmissions technology that's happening out there because we feel like we've got some insight that hasn't been in the industry right now. So we're excited about kind of pushing that forward as well. So we really look for areas where we can not only comply, but really try to carry the torch forward. Thank you for everything that you have said about that. It's honestly, I feel like I'm learning so much just by talking with you, but I'd like to transition to something a little bit more personal, which is if you, we have so much respect for what you do, do you have advice for other women who are entering the health IT industry and then if you could please expand if there's any advice for women-led businesses that you think would be helpful. Robin and I would be very curious to know what you have to say. Hmm. So when I was growing up, my parents never really made me feel like there was anything I couldn't do. I wasn't treated like, you know, well, girls do this and boys do this. So... I think that I grew up with an attitude of, I can do anything I want to do. And it doesn't matter that I'm a girl. And um, I think the revelation when I got into business and I saw some women taking almost a back seat kind of surprised me. And not that I was pushy or anything, but I was like, I can do that. You know, if, if there was a project to be done or, or an opportunity for a position, I would say, that's me. So part of it is, I guess, my parents blessed me with that attitude, and I would encourage folks to not feel less than. I guess the other thing is that women tend to choose roles that are potentially less technical. 
And I think they're really moving into those technical fields. Again, I think my parents blessed me by saying, you know, there's this new computer technology coming out in the world and you should really be a part of it. And um, I think that encouraging as much as we can girls to get out there and really participate. And I've done that. I've gone into school systems and I've talked to young women. I've gone into high schools and developed computer clubs, you know, back 15, 20 years ago when it wasn't quite as prevalent as it is now, but really just to show them that it's not something to be scared of. And that it's really something that many of them, just as many females can excel at this as, as men can. I'm going to tell a story. So I remember when my father took me to a college fair and we were walking up and down the aisles and there was a, a very prominent college that was there. And my father walked up and he said, well, so she's looking for a computer science school. And the fellow said to him, well, you know, her being a girl, uh, she can probably get a nice scholarship. And my father stepped back. I can remember, and he did this thing where he crossed his arm on his chest and he put his hand on his on his chin and he said, that's right, she is a girl, isn't she? So, I mean, that's kind, <laughs> of, the, that's kind of the environment in which I grew up. How supportive. That's really sweet. And I would consider myself very lucky to have somebody who was pushing me in that direction. Kudos to him. So did you, were you, you ended up in a, in a great field. Was that due to your, your parents? My encouragement has always stemmed from my mother. And she has really been similar, I would say, to you. And she's always been, Joy, you can do anything. I always did really well in school, which was nice. But she captured that. And really, and when I was in eighth grade, 14 or so, she really had me pursue a bunch of scholarships. And so I was fortunate enough to apply to a ton of them, wrote so many essays, and mm. uh, got accepted to a private school which is actually a private boarding school for high school, which is somewhat unusual. Wow. Um, yeah. And that, yeah, so uh, my mom basically was a single mom, and with her help, like, I was able to have a top-notch education, and I think I kind of took it from there. But that started at a really, I moved out of the house to go to school when I was 14. So that was certainly through her and her encouragement. That's great. And what about you, Robin? How did you, how did you get into this field? Really by a lot of happenstance and a lot of my motivation didn't come from someone. It was just really a self-directed learning um, and interest in what I was doing in healthcare and health IT. In my introduction to that, while wearing many hats at a small company that did revenue cycle management, where I learned a great deal, I walked into the CEO's office. They were talking about a project and he looked at me and he said, would you like to do an EMR implementation? This was about 14 years ago. And I said yes and promptly walked back to my desk and Googled what EMR meant. Um, <laughs> and I uh, cut my teeth doing NextGen and eClinical Works implementations uh, alongside uh, certified trainers. And it just, um, it, it just really became a passion and an interest that I, I decided to follow the lines on this map that I laid out for myself. And it's, it's been really interesting. And I think... When you talk about kind of the futuristic vision, Lauren, and you talk about your time really in this space and healthcare and more to be done, you know, it's easy to see that because it's not just thinking through what your product or solution does end to end, right? It's about everything else that it intersects and touches. 
ultimately from you know, conception to where it impacts the patient and, and really back again in a lot of cases now, right? Interoperability. And so there, there is just so much work to be done. And so I feel like the more I learn, probably like you, the more I get interested in how to be part of that as a solution and to make things easier for people. I, I love what you articulated about really trying to have an influence on other organizations, parts of the system, CMS, to streamline things, make things more efficient and help see what you can kind of mold along the way as well. Right. So it's almost like I need to contain, I need to focus and narrow what I want to do because, you know, there's only so much you can do and do well. The sky's the limit in terms of my vision, but in terms of what we can really accomplish here within our organization and with our partners, I have to be careful to say, so this is what's realistic. This is what we can really do and step-by-step make that happen. Well, Lauren, I think that we are ready to wrap up. It has been an absolute pleasure. Is there anything else you want to touch on or highlight for listeners or say that that we haven't? Oh, I'll probably think of it tonight as I'm falling asleep. But no, I think that, that it's delightful to have the two of you. It sounds like you've got such synergy. And it's wonderful to talk to two women business owners that are making a go of it as well. And I think sometimes I don't realize how much I miss that because it is such a male-dominated world that I live in. Uh, I belong to a mentoring group, and I would say that there's um, maybe two other women there. And most of the time, to be honest with you, one of them isn't there because she has to go home at night and uh, take care of her youngins. So um, this is a joy for me. Um, I would like to stay in touch and you know, be able at some point to sit down and have coffee with the two of you. We'll have to figure out a time and place to do that. Yeah, we could be in Malvern tomorrow. So whatever is good for you. <laughs> I, I, well, I don't know the Joy can be in Malvern tomorrow. I understand she's on the West <laughs> Fine. Coast. Fine, we'll leave Joy on the West Coast. We'll conference her in. I'll be there. <laughs> this has been such a fun conversation. So honestly, thank you just so much for a delightful talk. I feel like we've learned a lot and maybe become friends. So hopefully we'll get to talk again soon. We can definitely keep the dialogue going and we can revisit in a year or so and see how you're going. Definitely. And Lauren, Lauren, if anyone wants to reach out to you for a cup of coffee and email, learn more about Health Monix and what you all are doing, what's the best way for people to find you and your company? So we have a website, healthmonix.com, or I'm on LinkedIn. You can look me up, Lauren Patrick. and um, I should show up and be reachable through either one of those mechanisms. Thank you, Lauren, for sharing your expertise with our audience. And thank you for listening to the Hit Like a Girl podcast. If you want to know more about us or Lauren, check out our website at hitlikeagirlpod.com. If you found value in the show, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you simply tell a friend, family member, or colleague about this podcast, that would help us out too. You can always connect with us on Twitter or Instagram at the handle HitLikeAGirlPod. And heads up, this is our last episode of the season. Robin and I will be taking a short break and coming back with more Hit Like a Girl episodes in the spring. We wish you all a happy holiday season and a prosperous new year. Thanks again. See you soon.